0: Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much uh, for your grace and your mercy, your uh, faithfulness. Lord, we know that we uh, goof it. We don't even walk as we should, but Lord, you're faithful to us. And I pray, Heavenly Father, as we study your word, that we would see that you are faithful to all of your promises and to your saints, that you will one day judge those who afflict us, and you will, in fact, save those who belong to you. And so I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here today, that as a result of this study, they would not fear death and that they would be bold in their witness of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're going to be entering into the fifth seal here, and there's a lot of important implications from this seal judgment that we're going to be looking at, but I want to begin by giving you a review of where we were. Remember, we had viewed and studied the four seals, and I believe that the four seals really should be studied together or should be seen as a group of judgments because they all have the same, really the same mechanism by which John delivers them. That is a reference to four different horsemen. Recall that? So let me give you kind of a summary. Recall that the first four seals began with the Antichrist and his coalition coming to power. That was followed by warfare. That was followed by famine and then we had i think a summary statement you had a quarter of the earth die due to sword famine pestilence and wild beasts that's the fourth seal now recall back in ezekiel 14 21 anytime you had those four judgments you had what you had the wrath of god poured out so certainly we know that these things were associated with the wrath of god now i want you to see here a distinction think about world war ii we lost 3% of the world's population due to World War II. And yet, the wars that are being referred to in the first four seals are going to result in a death rate of 25% of the world's population. So what I'm trying to show you is this, something, this is something that's been unparalleled in human history. Now, I think Brian made a fair point. He said, well, that doesn't necessarily exclude the possibility that this type of warfare would occur in the future during the church age and I said you know what that's true but what we can do is prove that in the Olivet Discourse the references to birth pangs and the association with the abomination of desolation squarely puts all of these events within the 70th week of Daniel which is the day of the Lord okay let me show you some color coding I always want you to see the relationship between Revelation chapter 6 and the Olivet Discourse in both Mark 13 and Matthew 24. When you realize that these are parallel, I think it helps you understand the timing of these things. So again, first four seals in the Olivet Discourse, Revelation 6, you have the Antichrist as coalition, warfare, third seal, famine, fourth seal, you had a quarter of the earth dies. Well, lo and behold, when you look at the Olivet Discourse, I'll just take Mark 13, listen to what Jesus said, verses 6 through 8. Many will come in my name. Well, let's stop right there. That's the first seal. The Antichrist and his coalition coming about. They'll claim to be the Christ and mislead many. Verse 7, he says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, aha, there we have the second seal. Do you see that color-coded in Revelation 6? Do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but this is not yet the end, for nation will rise up against nation, still describing the warfare and kingdom against kingdom there will be earthquakes by the way earthquakes come at the sixth seal uh we'll we'll see that later and he says in various places there will also be famines lo and behold the third seal these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs and i think the birth pangs again is the summary statement now remember the last seven years the first three and a half are relatively peaceful for israel it's the last three and a half that's called the great tribulation jesus is saying that this is just the beginning of of birth pains it's the very beginning of the 70th week of daniel so i think that that's how we should understand it so again revelation 6 and the Olivet of discourse in matthew 24 and mark 13 are parallel okay and you're going to see more significance to that later here now let's get to the fifth seal where we see the imprecatory prayer of the saints now what's an imprecatory prayer well that's where you wish not so good things to happen to your enemies okay you wish that they would stumble and fall that god would judge them and so so we see for example in the psalms david giving imprecatory prayers about those who hate god so it's not necessarily an ungodly attitude but i'm going to show you that as we live in the church age you and i should desire that god is merciful to our enemies because he showed us mercy but this prayer isn't occurring in the church age as i'll show you and that's the difference so With that, let's look at this imprecatory prayer. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, John records this. He says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood? on those who dwell on the earth and there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also first thing I want you to see here is we're in the fifth seal is I want you to see the difference between this seal judgment and the first four that we looked at the first distinction that I would have you see is that, remember in the first four, you had this personification of horsemen? There was a summons, come. And then it was a horseman, a rider. Remember, it was a man on a white horse, and then it was a man on a red horse, and then you had the pale horse, etc., cetera, et cetera, Well, notice there's no summons of a horseman. So right away, we see there's something different about this seal judgment than the first four. The other thing that you want to take particularly careful note of is that notice in this judgment, it's not a judgment that is coming upon believers. Now, if you look in your Bible, and again, I don't know what you all have, but a lot of our, my Bibles, I know my English versions, will say on the fifth seal, the, the title will be martyrdom. That'll be kind of the paragraph title. Well, realize that God's judgment isn't being poured upon people who come to Christ during the tribulation period, but instead, We have to realize that what this judgment is, is God using the prayer of the saints to further judge his enemies. That's what this sealed judgment is all about. In fact, notice carefully, the distinction between those in blue are believers. They're those who've been murdered because of their faith, right? And then you have what unbelievers in red those who dwell upon the earth all right so you see a distinction between believers and unbelievers and then there's the cry out of the believers and they're crying out how long how long O lord holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth and so that's the request by these godly saints who are in heaven they're in their what we would call the intermediate state—they're alive with God, with Christ in the sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, as it were—but they don't have the resurrected body. So remember, when a believer dies, his body goes into the ground, or she, and their soul goes to be with the Lord. Second Corinthians five eight: to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says, and so that's the state that these people are in. So notice their answer or I should say the answer that's given to them by God, Preliminary, the preliminary answer is this. It says they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So that's the preliminary answer. What should they do when they pray? How long, O oh Lord, until you avenge our blood? He says, wait until there's more of you killed. Now, this I think conjures up this idea of this filling that we see in the Bible. There's an idea of filling. For example, let me give you a passage that Bob taught on not long ago. Colossians 1.24. In that passage, recall that Paul says that he had filled up the afflictions that were lacking in Christ. Am I saying that basically correctly, Bob? Filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. I think that's how he says it. And so we say to ourselves, well, wait a minute, wasn't Christ's atonement on the cross absolutely sufficient? Yes, it has nothing to do with that. What the Bible depicts is that there's a full measure, think of a pail, of suffering that the saints will go through, and once that pail is full, it's reached its climax, then God intervenes. And in the same way, we see that happening within the 70th week of Daniel, there's only so much suffering and so many saints that are going to suffer, and then God is going to fully intervene and bring his messianic kingdom about so it's this idea of filling now i want you to see where this prayer is ultimately answered it waits for the seventh bowl judgment now let's recall three series of judgments six seals right then you have the seventh seal opens up to the seven trumpets the seven trumpet opens up to the seven bowls the seven bowl opens up and in a sense it's open-ended because it leads to the great white throne judgment and the reign of the saints forever and ever. And God's judgment on his enemies is eternal. It's forever and ever. And so interestingly enough, the seventh bowl never ends. But at the seventh bowl, when it breaks forth, turn your Bibles to Revelation eighteen twenty. I want you to see how God finally answers this prayer. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell upon the earth and so he's going to give a final answer in revelation 18 now revelation 18 recall again this is the last judgment the seventh bowl and babylon is thrown down the very next chapter chapter 19 christ comes and reigns and sets up his millennial kingdom so revelation 18 20 and i'll also read 24 it says this it says rejoice over her o heaven and you saints Notice who's listed. Saints, that's all believers, apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. There's the answer to the imprecatory prayer. In fact, in the Greek, notice where it says God has pronounced judgment for you against her. It's literally, God has judged your judgment on her. That's literally what it says. God has judged your judgment. Well, whose judgment? The judgment of the saints, of the apostles, and the prophets. In other words, all believers is now being poured out upon the unbelievers. And we have then the culmination of God's wrath, and then we have the millennial kingdom come again in Revelation 19 into 20 as Jesus returns, okay? Uh, Also notice in verse 24, it says something important in Revelation 18. It says, and in her, that's Babylon, was found the blood of the prophets and of saints... And of all who had been slain on the earth. Now, that should bring to mind Jesus' words back in Matthew 23 when he likened the Pharisees to a wicked and adulterous generation that was guilty of the blood of the prophets. And so, what's interesting is there's this concept in the scripture that from the time of Abel, the very beginning, to the very end, you have a wicked generation. Now, it doesn't mean there's a 40-year window of people. It means everyone who's characterized by unbelief and is, is with those who kill the saints. It's those who murder, who can't stand the word of God, who can't stand the apostles, the prophets, nor those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so that wicked generation then reaches its culmination here at the end of the 70th week, okay? Now, I'm going to move on. I want to show you some very important implications to this fifth seal judgment. I don't think, a lot of, as, I don't think enough has been written about the significance of this, this seal judgment. First of all, I would prove, I think, that you have another indicator here from the fifth seal that we must be within the 70th week of Daniel or the day of the Lord. Now, how could we prove that? Well, here's an inference I think we should think about. Let's think about for a moment the prayer of the godly here in heaven notice in revelation 6 10 they cry out how long O lord holy and true will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth these are glorified believers now I, i shouldn't say they're glorified in the sense that they have their resurrection but in other words they're in the intermediate state they're with god and so i don't think that they're sinning by asking this in precatory prayer they're asking for judgment to come upon their enemies But I want you to see that contrasted with Stephen's prayer. Now, remember, Bob has been teaching us through the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, one thing that Bob has noted is we know when we have a speaker that we should listen to, an authoritative spokesman, because it either says that they were filled by the Holy Spirit, or as in Stephen's case, in Acts 6, 8, he's full of grace and power. Okay, so we know that Stephen is someone who's speaking on behalf of God. And remember, he gives this wonderful sermon. And at the end of the sermon, he basically says, look, all of you Pharisees and you Sadducees, you've killed the Holy One of Israel. You're the obstinate ones who are always guilty of the blood of the prophets. And what do they do in result of his sermon? They stone him to death. All right, now listen to what he says. Acts seven sixty. Then falling on his knees, this is Stephen, he cried out, With a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Well, wait a minute. Now we have someone who's being murdered, a believer, and yet he doesn't want judgment to come upon his enemies. In fact, he wants them to be saved. But notice that is directly opposite of what the saints in heaven are crying out for in Revelation 6.20. And so, who is right? Because, think about it, in Revelation 6, you certainly have authoritative spokesmen. In other words, these are saints in heaven. They're certainly not sinning by asking for what they're praying for, the avengement of their blood. But yet, Stephen certainly isn't sinning by asking, hey, Lord, don't hold this against them. So, I think the way we can answer this sort of dilemma is we think about, okay, Stephen and those in revelation first of all Stephen's living when well he's living during the church age this is the age dear brothers and sisters where you and i know that the vengeance of god is coming it's imminent but you and i want to extend grace and mercy to the enemies of god our enemies because god extended mercy and grace to us and so this is a godly reaction that Stephen has he wants salvation to come to those who abused him a believer in jesus christ however when we look at the saints in revelation 6 they ask for judgment and i think that that proves that the time for grace and mercy is over therefore their prayer must be when in the 70th week of daniel because in the 70th week of daniel god's grace is over it is now within the day of the lord where God's wrath is being poured out, and so they are completely praying something that is consistent with the will of God. So yes, during the church age, it's time for God's mercy, but they're praying this prayer, the saints in Revelation, during the day of the Lord when God's wrath is poured out. Yes, Brian.
1: I find it interesting that in the church age, God is is holding back because He wants more people to be saved. And then when you switch into the 70th week, he's waiting for more believers to get martyred. Yeah. It's it's quite
0: the contrast. Yeah, well said. And that's not to say, and I know you're not saying this, I'm just throwing the caveat out here, don't don't think that God isn't saving people during the 70th week of Dan. He certainly is. In fact, he has angels that proclaim the gospel. He has his two witnesses. He goes to great lengths. But you're absolutely right. I think we should understand that once we're within that 70th week god's wrath is being poured out and so certainly the saint's prayer is consistent with his will and so i think that that's another inference that we can draw to say yeah this is an indication that we're in a different time period than we are in the church age now that's all i want to point out so yeah all right now there's another important i think inference here and that is the fifth seal and the olive it discourse again i want you to see that revelation 6 in the All of it Discourse are parallel. If you see that, you're going to understand biblical eschatology a lot better. They're talking about the same time frame. Let me show you what Jesus says here. This I'm going to use Matthew 24, but I could also use, remember, Mark 13. They're parallel. Matthew 24, verses 7 through 9, Jesus said, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, let's stop there. What judgment was that? Well, that was the second judgment right peace was taken from the earth right or the second seal i should say in revelation 6 notice he also says in various places there will be famines and earthquakes now the earthquake there's a big one in the sixth seal but we saw famines as early as the third and the fourth seal right well then he says but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs so now we're done with the birth pangs then he says in verse 9 then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Sure enough, that's what we see in the fifth seal. So again, if we can prove that Jesus' words here in the Olivet Discourse are not about the church age now, we therefore have to conclude that that's exactly what Revelation 6 is about because they're parallel. Now, let me prove that to you one more time. Again, the term birth pangs is very instructive. The term in the Greek is odin. The very term that was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of Isaiah 13.8. In Isaiah 13.8, Odin had to do the labor pains with the future day of the Lord. The wrath of God that would come upon the whole planet to judge his enemies. Well, what's very interesting is when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 he associates the very same term with the day of the Lord. He uses Odin. So remember, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like Odin, like labor pains or birth pains. They're used interchangeably upon a woman and they shall not escape. Now, I've also proven there's 12 different terms that Paul uses that he takes right from the Olivet Discourse. So where was Paul getting his material? Right from Jesus. So lo and behold, Jesus uses the same term. And so I think it's a fair bet then that when Jesus uses the term birth pangs, it's associated with what? The day of the Lord. Now, if you and I are living during the day of the Lord, in other words, if Jesus is describing in all of a discourse, the church age that we're living in, then you and I are under the wrath of God. Because the day of the Lord is associated with God's wrath. Well, that would violate Scripture. First Thessalonians 5, 9, We've not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Revelation 3, 10, Because you've been faithful to keep my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So therefore, we know that this is a future day of the Lord. And because Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, and Mark 13 are parallel to Revelation 6, Revelation 6 must be not about the current age, but also about the future day of the Lord. Do you follow the logic? So that's, I think, how we can conclude that, yes, these are not things that are occurring now. They must be happening in the future day of the Lord. Now, the reason I labor this point is you will go to many prophecy conferences where they will pull out the newspaper And they will say, look, there's a famine here, there's an earthquake here, and there's a war over here. It's happening now. Well, certainly there are those things happening now. But what Jesus is describing are things that are so horrendous, they actually function as signs within that time period. When have we ever lost a quarter of the earth's population? Even during the bubonic plague, the worst it ever got was 12% of the world's population. Okay, So again, Jesus is giving real signs here of things that are so horrendous, Those who come to faith in Jesus Christ and are living during this time period, they will have real signs to know that the millennial kingdom is coming. All right, now with that, there's also an important implication regarding the fifth seal and its relationship to the millennial kingdom. In other words, I think that this fifth seal can help us refute amillennialism and postmillennialism. Now let me explain why. And this is something I, I don't think has been thought about hard enough let me explain why this is significant we have to be good readers of scripture and one of the problems that i've become aware of in the last five years of my life is when i look at systematic theologies there's a lot of assertions that simply aren't backed up by biblical data i read amillennialism i read post millennialism and i say to myself those are really fanciful ideas for the data that's actually present in scripture and so I'm going to show you evidence of that. Revelation 6, 9, again, what do we have? Well, it says, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, Jesus broke the seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So again, you have believers, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they've been killed. I remember they cry out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Well, that answer is given, as I mentioned, in Revelation 18, But the other dilemma is, wait, what about these believers who come to faith in Jesus during this tribulation period? What's going to happen to them? Well, we're not left hanging because when we get to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, it shows us that, yes, these people who died for their faith during the tribulation period will be raised from the dead. So they're not going to be excluded from God's kingdom and the resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 4, then I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was given to them. And I saw, notice the connective, and he's seeing this as well. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, here we have i think clearly the remedy to the problem of the death of the saints during the 70th week they're going to be raised from the dead notice what's in red in revelation 24 a thousand years what i think that means is a thousand years (laughs) even if we take it as a long period of time you know an indefinite long it's a long period of time in which they're going to be reigning with christ but i would take it as a thousand years now this is where the millennium debate stems from realize amillennialism denies that this period of future resurrected saints reigning bodily with christ in a future kingdom on earth they deny that what the amillennialist is saying ah means no they're saying that it's just a figurative spiritual spiritual language referring to the church age that we're living in now so that so what a millennialist would say to you is that we're living during that time period now. Okay, a postmillennialist, I uh, like John MacArthur, he says they're very optimistic amillennialists. That's all a post millennialist is. A post millennialist says that you and I are going to bring about the kingdom by subduing the earth for Christ, and then we basically have the, the whole world subdued and Christianized, and then Jesus returns is that the way the world goes according to the book of revelation no all right so i want you to see what the debate really hinges on in the millennium debate and this passage the fifth seal is very important to read revelation 20 verse 4 correctly because there's something that's a problem early on in revelation 6 9 namely the death of the saints but it's remedied in revelation 24 they're raised so the debate comes over this phrase they came to life the came to life is a verb zao zao can just simply be rendered they live or they came to life in this case it's an aorist active indicative so here's i'm going to scroll down because i want to read you some amillennial and post-millennial material here what how would an amillennial understand that they came to life well An amillennialist would not say that this is a physical resurrection. They would deny that, okay? But I want to give you, I want to be really fair to them. There's two different views that amillennialists have had over the years. The first view was given by Augustine or Augustine, if you so desire. St. Augustine said this. He said that this come to life of these saints meant that they came to spiritual life during this present age, Think about what he's saying. And this held sway in the church for years. He says that the coming to life, what I have in the box before you, is about people who come to faith and therefore they're spiritually alive because of their faith in Jesus. What's the immediate problem with that view? The reason why they're killed, I think Bob is saying it, the reason they were killed was because of their faith in Jesus. So how can how is is augustine is saying is how can they come to life be a spiritual you come to faith and therefore you're spiritually alive well these people were put to death because of their faith in jesus they were already believers it makes no sense and so again you have this tremendous theologian who makes this tremendous gaffe why because he's not a good reader and i and again i don't mean to disparage saint augustine i there's some things that i like about him but how could you make that error of course coming to life cannot be a A spiritual coming to life, meaning you come to faith in Jesus because they were martyred because of their faith in Jesus. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I have a question. Um, You know, it's always dangerous. I do a lot of reading and I can't remember where I read stuff. Yeah. All of that. Um, I've talked to a couple of guys who are amillennial, you know. Yeah. And um, I've heard people say that the amillennial position is is the one that the original Christians had and I've re- and I, I think that's wrong. I think you're right. I think that the original first century Christians held the position that, that you're discussing here. Yeah. That was the the original first century Christians. And I think that then beginning with Augustine is when a lot of this changed. Yeah. So these people you're that exactly say this, right they're now. not going back far enough. You're exactly right. What happens is really origin. Origin is an interpreter that becomes very well respected. He's Uh, a very well-respected interpreter, but um, he is uh, one who allegorizes Scripture. And so he ends up allegorizing Scripture, but because he's so well-respected, his interpretations start holding sway. But I think you're absolutely right. The the original writings of, for instance, Tertullian, we have Irenaeus, these were people who were premillennial. They believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, just because something is stated in church history, doesn't mean it's true. The evidence always goes back to the scripture, and I know you would affirm that as well. Yeah, Bob.
1: Yes, we have an article about that published on cicministry.org. And in that article, I go back and cite early church fathers before origin that believed in a literal millennium. Amen. And then the re-origin allegorized the Bible. I don't consider him a church father. I consider him a heretic. Yeah, amen. And Origen rejected a literal millennium because it was too Jewish. Mm -hmm. And the church had turned to anti-Semitism. Wow. At that point, and Origen couldn't tolerate anything Jewish. Wow. Why would God turn his attention to the Jews? Yeah say and save them yeah and uh so thought some of these false teachers yeah this article was based on a paper that i wrote in seminary for dr travis okay
0: church history and right?
1: he you know he wanted us to go back to original sources yeah and i got a good grade on the paper because it's accurate.
0: Exactly. yeah good Thank okay you. so don't what's the title listen of it, to Bob? these what's that what's the title of the article do you remember
1: Something like the Millennium and the Hope of the Church. Okay. It's early
0: on. It's back in the 90s. Yep. But if they put that in the search engine in CIC, you'll find it
1: within CIC. Yep. So some of these arguments are just flat out false. Yeah. And they get repeated over and over again. And it becomes tradition. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Very well said. Yeah. So look at that article. That would be a wonderful resource for you. You'd get a lot of good data. Yeah, Mike. Sure. (laughs) In history, uh, fourth, fourth century, Bob. Fourth origin, fourth century. Uh, third century, late third. Century. Third century, okay, late third century. A okay.
1: uh, late third
0: century. <laughs> no, Augustine before, would have been later, right? Yeah, yep. Before, before, yep. Before. So, Eric, have you read any commentaries uh, that? Um, that the time of the Gentiles ends at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation so that the only people getting saved in the seven-year tribulation are the Jewish people and Gentiles will not get saved in the seven-year tribulation. Have you ever heard that before? I've never heard anyone make that argument. Um, I've I've never seen a commentary that's reputable that says that and I think that that would be too hard and fast of a distinction. There's certainly going to be believers, both Jews and Gentiles, that come to faith during the tribulation period here's what i would just simply say is i think it's fair to say right now the majority of people on the planet that are being saved are gentiles and just numerically it's fewer jews perhaps and again i'm just a conjecture perhaps in the 70th week that reverses where the majority are jews and then you have a few gentiles but i don't know we uh, we wouldn't want to speculate where the bible is silent there so um, i've never read anybody that said that Um, perhaps there are some but i don't know of any so yep I just wanted, I kind of see things in columns, you know, to make it make sense. Yeah. And so, and naming names to make it helpful too. So when I'm out researching, I kind of have an idea of where the vast majority of people come from. Sure. But like an A-mill type group of believers would be Lutheranism, Catholicism. Yep. And then like the post-mill people would be like Liberation Theology and Kingdom Now or uh, New Apostolic Reformation. and the emergent church just so it just kind of helps me because i know where they're what platform they're coming from yeah now to be fair Luann, you're exactly right that's a good good distinctions um there are lutherans who are post-millennial there are reformed theologians who are post-millennial um so you're going to have a lot of you know what would you say interdenominational flux there you know there's people who hold the different positions but that's one thing that i think we want to get back to is to say okay what's the what's the bible saying rather than hold to these traditions of men let's just get back to being better readers of scripture let's just simply ask ourselves the question if you knew of somebody that had physically died and it says that they were raised from the dead would you expect that to be a spiritual coming to life or a physical coming to life well of course you'd think it's physical well what's the context of scripture these people died physically, it says that they came to life. Well, why would that be a spiritual resurrection? Wouldn't you expect it to be a physical one? Now, I'm going to come back to that, but, oh, do you have... I just have one more yeah. other comment, because when you bring that up, yeah. you know, the spiritualization, well, you know, with some of these, again, the a people, if everything is allegorized, that's why they can put that into that area that it's a spiritual resurrection versus a literal one. Exactly. You know, a very helpful distinction is one of the things that happened with the book of Revelation, it was labeled apocalyptic, almost apocalyptic only. What happened in Jewish apocalyptic literature is they would have very fanciful things said, but they used a lot of imagery and symbolism. Well, isn't it interesting that, yes, I think that there's apocalyptic elements within Revelation. In fact, that's what the, that's what the book is. Revelation means apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. But Paul, or John, the apostle who writes it, says that this is a prophecy blessed are those who heed the words of this prophecy it is a prophetic message and so we have to get away from that apocalyptic everything's a symbol to simply saying if there's a symbol john describes what that symbol is for instance in revelation 13 he talks about the dragon and he says well he's satan of old he just gives us what the symbol means well here when it comes to a thousand years he never says in oh, a by the way let me describe to you what that a thousand years really means he just it's a thousand years so very well said yeah and i think that's what's contributed to the allegorization was thinking it was apocalyptic when it's more of a prophecy by the way just real quick on the structure when you read an amillennialist like i'll show you a a quote here from anthony hokman he died i don't know how many years ago but he was a very influential amillennialist he would say that revelation is structured in seven different books so there's seven different parts of revelation the sad thing is, remember, when John himself gives us the structure of the book of Revelation. Remember in Revelation 1, I forget the exact verse, but he says, write about the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are going to take place after these things. Well, all of a sudden, when you get to Revelation 4, he says, I'm going to show you now the things that are going to take place after these things. That's the structure of the book. So why should I take Anthony Hockma's structure, where there are seven books artificially you know, He just artificially makes that, that that's the structure of the book. Well, John tells us what the structure of the book is. Okay, I'm going to go with the apostle John who was inspired by the Holy Spirit and who actually wrote the thing rather than Anthony Hochman's superficial structure imposed upon it. Now, let me give you the second view of amillennialism because this is going to be the primary view that you will see today. So most amillennialists have rejected Augustine's view simply because they realized in Revelation 20, verse 5, you have a reference to a resurrection that says, blessed is he who has a partaking of the first resurrection for the second death has no power over him. So with Augustine saying, well, there's really no resurrection, it just means spiritual life, they had a problem with that. They realized they couldn't sustain that very well in an argument. So the new view is what I would call very succinctly the blessedness view. And that simply is that they came to life means that they spiritually, again, it's still not physical, But that they spiritually, the saints, believers in Jesus, reign with Jesus in the heavenly realm. Okay, now again, notice it's still not physical. And again, my rebuttal to that would be, notice Revelation 6, 9. You had people physically die because of their faith in Jesus. Now in Revelation chapter 20, those souls who had been beheaded, they were physically dead. Why? Because of their testimony, the very same testimony that's alluded to in Revelation 6:9. all of a sudden it says that they came to life. Why would we assume that that physical death is contrasted now with spiritual life? It doesn't make any sense. In fact, we have a precedent in Revelation itself where when you have physical death of Jesus followed by the aorist active indicative of za'o to live or to come to life, you have obviously a physical resurrection. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. What I'm just showing you is how John uses language in the very writing that he's writing. So this is very powerful data because it's within the very book that we're studying. So remember, anytime you're doing a word study, always start with the author in the same book if you can If you can't, then go to the same author and other works that he's written in the New Testament. If that doesn't work, then look at how other writers in the New Testament use it. And then if that's still not sufficient, then branch out also to the Old Testament. But we're particularly interested how John uses the same language in the book of Revelation. Notice Revelation 2.8. Here he's talking about Jesus, or Jesus is really talking. This is, not to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this so he's introducing jesus john is but notice how he describes him he's the first and the last who was dead now is that spiritual death or physical death physical death he died on the cross right but he has come to life aorist active indicative of zao the very same form that's used here now did that mean that Jesus came to spiritual life or he was physically raised from the dead? Of course, it's the latter. So why would then the amillennialists say that when these saints who were physically killed and who, were, who came to life, why would they say that that's only spiritual life? Of course, it makes no sense. That's a poor reading. They would, uh, the opposite of an astute reading, Bob, is it would be a poor reading and they have all their coffee taken away right? <laughs> Remember, the Astute Reading Award, you get free coffee from Bob, but poor reading, you get all your coffee's taken away. So, okay. Now, that's, I'm going to show you another amillennial quote here on the next slide, but let me go to postmillennialism because that seems to be a little stranger animal yet. Postmillennialism, they would understand this phrase, they came to life, to mean that there was a rebirth of the cause for which the martyrs died, Okay, Now, why are we laboring post-millennialism? Bob has written some really excellent articles on this dominion mandate. Post-millennialism, believe it or not, is on the rise throughout America because people want to take their country back and Christianize it and see that happen to the world. And so, isn't it interesting, they spiritualize this to the point where it's not even physical life or spiritual life, it's about the resurrection of, what did they say, the rebirth of the cause for which the martyrs died. Now it's a resurrection of a cause or a set of ideals that the saints used to hold to. Wow, that is a really bad you should never have coffee again if you have that reading, right? In fact, let me read. This is a, a millennialist who actually teach or a postmillennialist, excuse me, who teaches at Gordon Conwell, John Jefferson Davis. He says, quote, the first resurrection then refers, that's what is being referred to here. The first resurrection then refers to the future restoration and vindication of the cause for which the martyrs died, Wow. So when you see saints that are beheaded, and then it says that they came to life, you're to assume that that means that what was resurrected was the cause for which they died. You see, that's bad reading, isn't it? Okay, that's reading into tradition. So I'm showing you these things because I'm showing you that post-millennialism and amillennialism is, it's a straw man. It's easy to push down. I I don't want to say it's a straw man argument because a straw man argument is where you're giving an argument that your opponent doesn't hold to. What I'm showing you is that it's a, uh, what was the name of those cities that were false cities? Um, Remember back during the Cold War? uh, Potomacan... Does anybody remember that they'd have these false cities that were set up and then they would see how a nuclear war function? Well, it's it's my whole point is it's false. It's there's nothing to it. What was it? I'm just saying a house of cards. A house of cards, thank you. That's a better analogy. Thank you. I was grasping so hard for an analogy. It's a house of cards. And there's nothing to it. Now, let me give you another quote from a post millennialist This is Barnes. He says this. This is an millennialist. He says or post millennialist He says, "Quote They were exalted in their principles and in their personal happiness in heaven as if they occupied the throne with him and shared its honors and triumphs. So, again, this would be the idea that there's a blessedness, almost like an amillennialist, but he would still hold to this idea that there's a resurrection of the viewpoints that the martyrs once held to. Again, very strange. Um, Let me give you A.H. Strong. He said he was an amillennialist, he was a Baptist. Um, he believed, though, by the way, in some really strange things like there would be a second chance for ultimate reconciliation for all people, that you could be a believer uh, in Jesus, even if you didn't know Jesus and you were um, some other religion, if you believed in God that that was good enough. But nonetheless, H. Strong said, he was a post-millennialist, he says, quote, "...a period in the latter days of the church militant, when under special influence of the Holy Ghost, the spirit of the martyr shall appear again." the religion being greatly quickened and revived, and the members of Christ's churches become so conscious of their strength in Christ that they shall, to an extent unknown before, triumph over the powers of evil, both within and without. So again, it would be the revival, this coming to life of the strength of the martyrs. Okay, not very, very compelling at all. So yeah, Tom. Tom. the seven mountain mandate with the uh with all the different things it seems like that's where our country especially from a standpoint when you look at the politicians it would be kind of i would say uh more on our side of doing things away you know from a christian point of view but but it's all uh really that kind of a view isn't it for the post-millennial view uh, when you're talking about education, we've yes. got to get it to this particular point. Uh, as far as our country now, and that is very appealing uh, you know, to the you're world. You're exactly right. I mean, to our country especially. especially. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Bob. Bob wrote a whole article about yeah, this. I've yeah, I've written about that.
1: And see, this is ingrained in America.
0: Yeah. We think we are
1: Israel. Yeah. And God's going to restore Israel and have a millennial reign and it's gonna be America, not actual Israel. And if you go back in our history, in the 18th and 19th century, post-millennialism was the prevailing view. Yeah. Okay, it was the view of Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. I quote Charles Finney saying that if we only had a few men who would work harder, we could bring the millennium to America in a few months. Yeah, Yeah. so it's just going to be America is going to be the millennium. And I just recently wrote an article rebuking a guy trying to say America is somehow Israel. Yeah, Jonathan Cahn, yeah. Okay, and so you always get a hearing, you always get people charged up, but I'm telling you right now that Donald Trump's not going to rule over a
0: millennium. (laughs) Oh, sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's very well said. Um, Bob wrote a book, uh, an article about the dominion mandate. One thing you have to realize about post is that they change the dominion mandate in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 where we're given dominion over all, all the things that creepeth upon the earth, right, the whole creation. Well, post often extend that dominion mandate to humanity. To other christians so then we're to rule over other people well that dominion mandate was never given to rule over other people and so they distort the scripture and bob has a very helpful article on that now let me return back to amillennialism because i think you see the faulty nature of postmillennialism. i want to give you some, sometimes i just want to give you the best you know person who holds that other view that we don't hold to and so i think anthony hochman is probably one of the most articulate spokesmen for amillennialism I want you to see what he writes here, just so you're acquainted with what they say. Now, again, I put in bold up here that on, this is about what's being referred to in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. So, Anthony Hochman, a an millennialist, is commenting on what that phrase, they came to life, means. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, that John is speaking of a kind of resurrection here is apparent from the second sentence of verse 5 this is the first resurrection. Words which obviously refer to the living and reigning with Christ in verse 4. So let's stop there. That's why the Amillennialists jettisoned Augustine's view, because they knew it was killing them in debate. Augustine said it had nothing to do with a resurrection. It just simply meant that you came to faith in Jesus. Okay, so then he goes on. He says, but is this first resurrection a physical resurrection, a raising of the body from the dead? Now listen to what he says. Obviously not since the raising of the body from the dead is mentioned later in the chapter as something distinct from what is described here, verses 11 through 13. So he's talking about Revelation 20, verses 11 through 13. Only if one believes in two bodily resurrections, one of believers at the beginning of the millennium and another of unbelievers after the millennium, will one be able to understand the ezazon. that's are coming to life, and verse 4 is referring to a bodily resurrection. Now, <laughs> I think Mike is seeing this very clearly for what it is. Let me just put up the, first of all, the underlying portion here. Notice he says that in verse 4 of Revelation 20, it can only refer to a resurrected body that's physical if one believes in two bodily resurrections. We should believe in two bodily resurrections because the Bible Teaches that there are two bodily resurrections, okay? He is what's doing something what's called begging the question. What he's saying is there cannot be two bodily resurrections. Therefore, when you see two bodily resurrections in the scripture, it can't mean that. Well, what he's doing is he is asserting his conclusion into the premise of his argument. Do you see? Instead of mining the scriptures for data, He's loading the discussion, all right? So that's the problem. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to see the evidence for two different resurrections. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 through 6. Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 through 6. And then I'll handle and rebut his portion that's in red here in a moment. So we had this resurrection, this coming to life, as we read about in Revelation 20, verse 4. I think it's obvious that people who died physically and who came to life came to life physically, but we see further evidence that there's two different resurrections right away in Revelation 20, verse 5 through 6. Notice John says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, the term resurrection there in verse 5 is anastasis which I think it's used, if I recall correctly, as years ago that I studied this, but it was like 42 times, 41 of which in the New Testament always occur referring to a physical resurrection. And it's obvious because in context, we were talking about physical people who physically died and were physically raised. So this is the first resurrection. Well, having a first resurrection implies what? You have a second resurrection. Well, all of a sudden... Do you notice the faulted nature of his... It's only if one believes in two bodily resurrections could you hold that view. Well, the Bible teaches that there are two bodily resurrections. In fact, turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. I want you to see that... Yes, it's... By the way, one of the confusions, I think that... The confusing points that the amillennialists fall for is that when they read in Scripture, there's times when Jesus just alludes to the resurrection in general... And he doesn't break it down in order like we see here in Revelation. But I want you to see a place where even Jesus here breaks it down into two different, at least qualitatively different, types of resurrection. John chapter 5 will start in verse 22. Remember here the Pharisees and the Jews are angry with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. So he's talking about his authority. And he says, and I'll just start in verse 22 for our sake, John 5, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He, do, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. One thing I want to point out is notice to go from judgment to life, judgment is always reserved in John and Revelation for unbelievers. In other words, if you're a believer, yes, we know that we're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, but John never uses judgment on behalf of believers. And I'll make a big point of that because it helps us with our interpretation. But let me skip down. And he says, uh, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now, is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who hear in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So notice even Jesus is talking qualitatively about how two different resurrections. Now, does he link them both together in one statement? Yes. But now in Revelation, we're seeing that they're actually separated by a thousand years. So why is that so difficult to grasp? In progressive Revelation, is John is given this by the Spirit, he's showing us that this bodily resurrection, some to eternal life and to some to damnation, is actually separated by a thousand years. Okay. To read anything else into it is simply reading our own desires into the text okay so again revelation 20 verse 6 blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of god and of christ and will reign with him for a thousand years so now what is just stated here is that if you have a part in the first resurrection you have no part in the second death okay so That's very important because notice in red what this amillennialist said. He said, obviously not. He says there's no bodily resurrection in Revelation 24. He says, since the raising of the body from the dead is mentioned later in the chapter is something distinct from what is described here. So what he's referring to is Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13. So let's turn to that. And what I want you to see is that there's great evidence to understand Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15 as a resurrection that occurs only for unbelievers. Okay, now I'll show you some evidence in just a moment, but let's read the text. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened, And another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Now let's stop there. Notice the reference to the dead twice in verse 12. What's very interesting is in the new Testament, believers are never simply referred to as the dead. They may be referred to as the dead in Christ, but never simply the dead. Now, what's very interesting is notice he's going to talk about their judgment. Verse 13, he says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. By the way, the ancients had a conception that you're either buried in the sea or you're on land. And if you're in land, you're in Hades. And if you're in the sea, you're in kind of this abyss. So that's why he uses this threefold place. He says, The sea gave up the dead which are in it. Death and Hades are seen as really synonymous. They gave up the dead which were in them. So it's universal for all unbelievers. And they were judged. Now, notice they were judged. There's judgment here. Now, this is what's so, so, I think, significant, is every time in the book of John and his his gospel and in the book of Revelation, when judgment is referred to, it's always referring to judgment of unbelievers. Believers are never referred to as those who go to judgment. Let me build the case. Turn your Bibles again to John chapter 3. Let's start in verse 16, the Official verse of the NFL. Right? <laughs> I think we all know that one by heart. Uh, we'll start in John 3.16. I'll read through verse I think 18 or 19 here. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did now this is verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. That would be the opposite of salvation. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not judged. But whoever does not believe is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Okay, so notice the judgment is that the light came into the world, but men love their deeds of darkness more. Now, let me um, give you some other verses. And I already gave them to you in uh, John chapter 5. There's so many of them. Okay, let's just go back to John chapter 5. I just want to point out these things. John five 22. We'll just go quickly. John five twenty two. Notice it says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Then when you go to verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Skip down to verse 29, or verse 28. Do not marvel at this, and hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear and come out. Those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So notice judgment is always, always, always for the unbeliever. Uh, skip ahead to Revelation. Revelation 6.10, that's a passage that we had just t- talked about here in our fifth seal. I'll just go through the data, and I'll make the grand point at the end here, and we'll be done. Revelation 6.10. Notice where does the judgment? These people want judgment to come upon whom? It says they cried out with a loud voice. These are believers, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who dwell on the earth are what? Unbelievers only. Let's go ahead to Revelation 16.5. Just showing you all the data where judgment is always referred to or I should say is associated with the unbeliever. Revelation 16.5, here you have the seven bulls of wrath. He says, and I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you are the holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. So the judgment came upon whom? Upon Babylon, upon the unregenerate, all the unbelievers. Skip ahead to Revelation 17.1. This is the judgment of the great prostitute, the great harlot. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. I'm giving you every occurrence, by the way, of judge judging judgment in the book of Revelation. Okay, now skip ahead. That's obviously judgment of not of believers but of unbelievers. Skip ahead to Revelation 18.18. Here you have the judge of Babylon. I'll just back up. It's um, Well, here they cry out. They cried out. Whoops, is it 1818? Oh, I'm sorry, it's 188. 188. Revelation 188, it says, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. This is Babylon. Death and mourning and famine. That's what we read about, by the way, at the fourth seal. And she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And I could go on and on. Trust me, dear ones. Let me, I'll just give you these verses. You can look up. Revelation 18.10, 18.20, 19.2, 19.11, and then we come to the passage that's under discussion, the millennial passage. So every time we see judgment, judgment is only of unbelievers. So let's take... Yeah. Are we going to be going to the judgment seat of Christ, not the great right way to judgment, but believers, I am going to be in the judgment. The Bema seat. Yeah, exactly. And we'll talk about that. The one thing I want you to understand is that John isn't using language like that. So you're right when we look at Paul's language, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 5. But what I want you to see here is that when John is building this case for judgment in Revelation 20, in verses 11 through 15, all those who are at this judgment, therefore, must be whom? Unbelievers. Because they incur the second death and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Remember, in verse 5, it says, Blessed is he who is a partaker of the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over him. So again, turn your Bibles real quickly back to Revelation chapter 20. Notice here, verse 12, we'll just read that. He says, and I saw the dead. Again, believers aren't referred to simply as the dead. They're the dead in Christ, but not simply the dead. The great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books. Skip down to verse 13. It says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Again, believers are never judged. They're saved. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Dear ones, I'm laboring this point to show you that in Revelation chapter 20, Verses 11 through 15, it is exclusively a judgment for unbelievers, only unbelievers. And so when he says, well, wait a minute, the resurrection is seen in verses 11 through 13. No, the resurrection he's referring to is only for the unregenerate. And we can prove that by how John uses his language. Okay, Revelation chapter 20, verse four is the resurrection for believers. The first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, is only a resurrection of the unregenerate, those who are damned, who end up in the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, we'll have to continue this further. But I hope this has convinced you that when it comes to amillennialism and postmillennialism, they don't have good evidence. And that you can stand very firmly and say, yes, I know that there is a millennial reign of Christ, that as John says in Revelation 5.10, we will in fact be raised from the dead and we will reign upon the earth, just as the scriptures have in fact declared. So, With that, we'll take more comments and questions next time. Let's end with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. I pray, Lord, as my brothers and sisters go out into a world that denies your promises, that you would equip them to give an answer, but you would also put it deeply within their heart to know that they can believe in your promises, that this word isn't too difficult to understand. It's not so mangled that they can't comprehend it, but that they can know that they have a resurrection, a kingdom to look forward to, and that you keep all of your promises literally. So I pray, Lord, that this would sustain them, that this would give them great joy in the troubling days ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.